Father, I pray for today, Lord, that everything I say, everything we do, Lord, will glorify you, that we would hear what your Spirit is saying to the church. We would have ears to hear exactly what you're saying to us, Father. Amen. We're just going to kind of keep that going if you're cool with that. It's pretty powerful in here. I don't know what it's translating like to you guys at home, but we're so hungry for this, aren't we, guys? <laughs> it's pretty amazing. It's a little bit breathtaking. Just the presence of God is so powerful. You know, we're, we're talking about the book of Revelation, and honestly, the more Brahm and I study this, and it's, it's amazing, you know. I, I dug up my notes that I preached at a Manifest Youth Conference 11 years ago. And what I preached last week and this, I'm about to do this week is what I preached to a whole bunch of youth 11 years ago in Melbourne. And to revisit these truths and to revisit these principles is, is pretty amazing and pretty incredible. And, uh, you know, there's a lot to take in as we're, as we're listening to all of this. There's a lot of information that we're taking in, but I want to encourage you guys to go back and listen to what's been preached. It's been three weeks now, and every sermon is going to build on to the next. You know, be diligent. Let's be intelligent believers, as Brahma always says. Let's be diligent and, and rightly handle the Word of God. Maybe take notes. Take a, a moment in your morning or your night and just sit down and listen and take notes because it's not just taking one scripture and preaching a sermon. This is We're going through things line by line to build an understanding because this is going to be powerful as we head towards the end of Revelation. It's going to build a truth and a, and a foundational truth in us that will help us to understand the big picture. And you know what, if ever there was a time in the world to understand the big picture, it's now. And, uh, and we need to go to the Word of God to get that. There are so many doctrines out there, so many perspectives and so many interpretations of, of basic principles in the Word of God that if we don't get a grip and go back to the foundations, we're going to lose the plot as the church. And so we have to understand the foundational truths that the Word is teaching us. So go back, listen, read the chapters again. Those first, uh, the first two chapters, and, and in fact, we're going to pick it up again. Last week, I, I started in chapter 2, verse 1, and we're going to read it again through to verse 7, and we're going to move on from where we were last week and, and keep developing the thoughts around this. Very important. You might say, well, don't go so slowly, Diane. Well, we actually have to. Because everything is so power-packed with truth <laughs> and substance. we almost It's like when you eat a steak, you can't just chew it all up and swallow it really fast. You have to tenderize it with the chewing and, and allow it to, to be tenderized enough so that you can digest it properly. And this, what this is like, this is meat that we're talking about. And Melbourne Life, Jakarta Life, we want to raise people who know how to understand the meat of the Word of God and, uh, and not just continually stay on milk. But we understand the truths that are that are that are presented in in the word. So let's go to chapter two, verse one. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. There's our high priest right there. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. 
but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Sounds like a really powerful church. But then we see in verse 4, it says, But I have this against you. Wow. Jesus actually has something against this church. What is it? That you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, he says to them, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the work, the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Okay. So we've already mentioned this a few weeks in a row now. We understand the purpose of the letters, that there's basically this huge battle looming with the state and with the state with all its strength and the and the church with all its human frailty. And the churches here are being admonished and encouraged and requested to listen and to change something that they're doing. Because as we've mentioned before, it's not what happens out there externally in the world that is going to destroy the church, but it's what happens within the church and what is tolerated in a church that will destroy it. So the Ephesians, for example, as we just read and as we just see as a quick summary, it had all the doctrinal boundaries in place. So the invitation was not for the doctrine to be perfected or to be corrected or to be implemented in a better way, but it was linked back to something called their first love or the love that they had at the start. And it was addressing the very thing, the very loophole that would cause their demise. So what kind of love was Jesus addressing? Well, we're going to find out it's the laying down our life kind of love. Loving not our lives even unto death kind of love. And then he ends by saying, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. And then the invitation is that if you listen to the one who conquers, this is what you'll be given. So we understand the purpose. The background, of course, we also understand is being given to the angels. The angels are held in the right hand of Jesus. And we, we discover that the angels are the messengers of the church. And, you know, there are different schools of thoughts around this. It could be actual angelic beings. And, of course, people could use the example in the book of Daniel where it talks about the prince of Persia and the prince of, prince of Greece and how they actually were angelic beings overseeing actual human uh, 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 governments that were about to come, the you know, ancient Greece and, and of course Babylon and then it went on to the Roman Empire. So huge empires that were about to be, be governed here on earth were actually governed by princes and rulers in the heavenly places. So you could say that they are actually angelic beings. However, there's another argument that they are actually people because the government of the church is not in the hands of angels. And so what is being held in the right hand, that authority of Jesus, is actually people. Because angels couldn't sing the song of redemption. And it says that the angels also longed to look into the mystery of salvation. And the government, as I said, wasn't in their hands. It was in what Ephesians calls the eldership or the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and the teachers. They were, it was the privileges of human beings to govern and to oversee the churches. So there are two schools of thoughts. I probably lean towards that one more. It sounds a lot more practical to me, but then, hey, 
who am I? What am I to know this? It could be either. And then, of course, the church, as we mentioned, is the called out ones, the gathered company of God. Always remember, it's the gathered, it's who we are. It's the representation of the kingdom of heaven here on earth. In other words, we are God's lampstand of light in the city. So let's look really briefly at, at uh, how the Ephesian church started, because it's kind of important that we, we look first at the city and understand a little bit about what this church was actually embedded into. So the background of the city, you know, you could look at it from a geographic graphical point of view it used to be a very important it was a very important church uh, back sorry important city I'm getting ahead of myself here it was called the third city of the Christian faith behind Jerusalem and Antioch and then there was Ephesus so it, it was a very important center from because from there eventually the gospel sounded out to all of Asia from a commercial point of view it was very rich uh, it was a rich city in a rich country remember this was called Asia at the time which is now Turkey but back then it was called Asia it had a very prosperous business center. It was on the trade route from Rome right through to the east. It was also the third largest city in the empire behind Rome and Athens. So this was a city kind of marked in the natural, in the spirit, from a church point of view. It was regarded as the first and greatest metropolis of Asia and it was the largest trading center in Asia Minor. So this had a, a real stamp on the area from a commercial point of view. Politically also, great importance. It actually had its own government there because of it was a capital of a Roman province and eventually it was recognized by the emperor or by one of the emperors as, a, as the imperial capital of Asia. So this was a really, really important city. We have to understand that. But even more so than that religiously and spiritually, it was intense. It was a city of so many religions and cults and myths and legends about gods and goddesses. It was a bit of a uh, hub for all this sort of stuff and had a very huge idolatrous system that was happening. It was the place where they would come and study magic and it was hospitable to magicians, sorcerers, all sorts of things. Of course, Artemis, another name for Artemis is Diana, uh, was, was, uh, was there and she was a deity. Unfortunately, I was named after her. And uh, she was considered the legitimate wife of Ephesus and I'm so glad I'm redeemed, guys. Um, but she was considered this really powerful deity in, in that region. And, you know, in fact, in the city was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, which was the great temple or the, the to the great mother, the Grecian goddess Diana, who had fallen from heaven. This is the, as the myth went along. So all of Asia would, would worship here. So not only was it where the Christians were coming, not only was it where the commercial trade routes were, not only was the, the area of a political base and a, and a political government, but it was also a uniting link with other cities for worship. So this was an incredibly important city. And, you know, added to that, at the time of the writing of the book of Revelation, it is the centre of the emperor worship cult, which is what we've been discussing. So to all intents and purposes, from a spiritual point of view, this, this deity was there, was considered extremely powerful. And, um, you know, it, was, it sounds like a very, very dark city. And this is where the, the church in Ephesus is basically being placed into this city. And it sounds to me like a city that's ripe for the gospel. But the amazing thing is, even in spite of all this darkness, that this power of darkness in the city could not withstand the power of the gospel. Because the church was embedded there. 
and it became a powerful church. So let's look a little bit at the background of the church. It was positioned by God for very powerful influence. It was established under Paul's ministry. You know, he'd on his uh, second missionary trip, he'd wanted to go through there, but he was forbidden by God. And so on his, he, he, on his way back, he dropped off Priscilla and Aquila, who you might have heard of in the New Testament. And then, then on his third missionary trip, the Bible tells us that uh, he, a door opened, as he puts it in 1 Corinthians 16, 8-9, a door opened for effective ministry in Ephesus and that's when he went back there you know we've got to understand when we read all these little bits in the scriptures don't just brush over them look at the nuances understand the plans and purposes because we can see God always has strategies sometimes it looks like he's cutting things off and blocking our road for certain things but he's actually got a strategy and a plan in mind because he's totally in charge so on his third missionary trip we see Paul go back to this place and he visits them and he finds a handful of believers and uh, he gets them all filled with the Holy Spirit. And this, this city ended up having one of the greatest series of ministries that any church could ever hope for. The disciples of John were there. Um, they had a lot of the apostles come through there and teach. Priscilla and Aquila, as we mentioned, were there and they instructed Apollos, who was a, teaching, a teacher in the ways of God and, and moved him out, sent him on. Timothy, that we read about in the book of Timothy, who Paul wrote to, he pastored there under Paul's leadership and authority and instruction. And his historians say that John, Mary, Peter, Andrew and Philip all lived here over time. This is the place where Paul witnessed uh, incredible supernatural miracles. There were profound, extraordinary miracles. There were special miracles, the Bible says, that happened here. This is the place where he witnessed in a synagogue for three months, gathered a small nucleus of believers, then basically got kicked out of there because of the opposition, took them to a little lecture hall. And you know what? When I read that, I felt really encouraged. It's like... They didn't really have a place to call their own. It kind of sounds like Melbourne life to me and Jakarta life. But you know what? That's not what got that church happening. They got kicked out of the synagogue. They were sent to a, a lecture hall. Could have looked a little bit like Genizano for all we know. And uh, But you know what? In the end, they developed a church that resounded to all of Asia, sent out missionaries to all of Asia. And it certainly was because it wasn't because they had a hot worship team or a worship album or a, or a keyboard or a mic. Sorry, Joel, but yeah, <clears throat> they didn't have that. So, you know, the things that churches put lots of, I'm not saying any of that's not important, of course it is. But if we focus our importance on those sorts of things in today's church culture, we're going to miss the whole point of what grows the church, which is the making of strong disciples. How do we do that? Through the Word of God, through the truth. And these were disciples, think about it. They were, they were just wandering around in Ephesus until Paul came along. They didn't have a church to go to. They didn't have any, any leader to look up to. They were probably being led a little bit by Priscilla and Aquila. We don't really know. And then Paul gathers them. Get, they weren't even filled with the Spirit at this point in time. And then they, get, they, they go to the synagogue and they're, they're watching all the tension there and they're watching this incredible teacher teach from the Word of God. And they're watching him teach. And then, then there's disruption there and strong opposition towards Paul. So then they have a choice choice to make. What are we going to do? Who are we going to follow? They decide to follow the truth of the Word of God. They follow Paul. They go to a lecture hall. And in the end, the only, if you look at the thread of what would have happened these, to these disciples, the strong thread that was in their lives was an absolute obedience to the Word of God, to the truth of the Word of God. 
They didn't care about their surroundings. They didn't care about what was uh, what was going on in the world, the, the world around them. It was their love for Jesus, their passion, and their obsession with just following Him that developed the church in that known world at that time. It, it's incredible. So Paul was there. He ministered there for about two years, and uh, all the of Asia, it says, heard the word of the Lord. Now think about it. He didn't have YouTube. He didn't have Resi. He didn't have a church website. He didn't have to go through what we went through this morning and have to reboot and start again and do whatever it was we needed to do. It wasn't actually Paul that reached all of Asia. It was his disciples, which is so powerful. That is a powerful thought when you think about it. It wasn't through him. It was through his disciples who he fed and gave the truth of the Word of God. So this became this incredibly great center from which the gospel went. And... uh, and even then, after two years, you know, Paul did, he left Ephesus, he, he went on a bit of a journey, and on his loop back and on his return journey back now to Jerusalem, he gathered the, the uh, elders together in another city, but he called for the elders of, of, uh, of Ephesus, and he, he brought them together with a really strong warning. And he basically said to them, and you can look it up in Acts 20, and it tells us the story. It goes, if you want to read the whole thing from 17 to 38, but basically it starts at 28, and he tells them to be really, really careful uh, because there are wolves coming. He foretold that these basically wolves in sheep's clothing, not real wolves, but people wolves, who were going to destroy and scatter the flocks. And these were going to be people who were one of them, who were elders and leaders amongst them. And he warned against some people who were actually going to try and draw the disciples to themselves. That that means people who were in a position of authority. He says, just be careful. I can see that this is coming. And so his address to the Ephesian elders was one of the most moving words that Paul ever gave. It's really, it is actually very powerful to go back and read. So that's the background of the church, which I think is really important for us to understand in the context of what Jesus is saying to the angel of the church and saying to these churches through the angel. It was a church that had powerful teaching about the significance of the church, the body of Christ. Remember, he labored there for two years, teaching them. And several years later, he wrote this incredible epistle to the Ephesians from Rome. And it was one of the highest, deepest, richest Pauline epistles because it was the pinnacle of Paul's revelation about the church. And he presented this revelation of the church in her highest glory. In fact, he even says in 118, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be flooded with light so that you would know the hope of his calling and the glorious inheritance that is within the saints. And he goes on to pray because he's asking that these people would actually see and grasp who they are as the body of Christ. Powerful, powerful. You know, and uh, we, we see in this epistle that he lifts the believers into the spirit realm and begins to describe to them. He takes them back to the eternal purposes of God in Christ for the church. He talks about in chapters 1 and 2, and we, we talk about this in, in DMS, our discipleship ministry school. If you can join us, please come and join us. We need to be strong in these foundational truths. But in chapters 1 and 2, he talks about how both Jesus and we are seated with Jesus in heaven 
heavenly places, far above all rule, power, authority, dominion, title, every name that can be named. That's who Jesus is and that's where we are seated and positioned from a spiritual point of view. So he talks about our authority. In chapter 3, he begins to talk about how we are a new race, that the Gentiles and the Jews are brought together in this third race, a new race. And this third race, this, this body of Christ, will display the, God's manifold wisdom to powers and rulers and principalities in the heavenly realm. And then he goes on in chapter 4 and begins to talk about what is going to happen to this church, to this body, how they will be governed. And this is where we hear about the Ascension Gift Ministries, or some people call it the Fivefold Ministries, the government of the church. They are gifts. These aren't gifts of the Holy Spirit. These are gifts that Jesus gives to the church. They're handpicked by Him. We don't get to say, oh, I think I'll be an apostle. No, He gives apostles. He gives them. He selects them and He puts them in place. Very important point. I'd love to preach on that one day about the importance of listening to the true apostles, prophets, pastors, evangelists and teachers because nowadays there's a lot of disdain and a lot of discrediting the ones that are actually the ones that are given by Jesus. And these are the sheep that are doing it. And there's a real warning. I won't go on about it now, but this is something that's sort of bubbling up in me that we need to understand who God has placed and it's very important to have ears to hear and to see what God is saying to us. So that's in chapter 4, talking about the government of the church. And then ultimately the great mystery, the profound mystery of the bride of Christ is talked about in chapter 5. And how he likens that and talks about the mystery of a, of a, a man and a woman, a husband and wife coming together. And how they are a, a demonstration and a picture of the profound mystery of Christ and his bride, the, who, which is us, the church. And then, of course, in chapter 6, it talks about the armour of God and how we are given total authority and power. That is our identity. So the whole book of Ephesians is like this huge body of work that talks about our corporate identity as a church. He presents us as a temple, as a family, as a body, as his bride and as the army of the Lord. I don't know anything more intimate than being called the bride of Jesus Christ. Very, very powerful. It's really interesting, just a little bit of information here too, that Ephesus or the Ephesian church was the only church out of the seven in the book of Revelation to which an epistle had been written. Very interesting. So we can see from that that this church probably had the best teaching any church had ever received. Profound teaching. So what's our conclusion about this church in this city? Well, it was had a rich heritage. It had incredible ministry teams. I mean, hey, even even um, John, who's writing this revelation, pastored there. He was he was in that place, and here he is now being used by the Holy Spirit to bring a word to that to that city, to that church. Can you imagine? So it had a rich heritage. It was founded on rich ministry and revelation of the word and God's plan for the church. Had a supernaturally explosive start. A, few, a handful, a few disciples filled with the Holy Spirit. Couple that with the preaching of the word from from an, an ascension gift ministry in Paul, teaching the word of God, miracles, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the gift of miracles, extraordinary miracles coming through Paul, had this incredible start. This church was poised to have a very long-lasting influence and to be a continual light in that city. Nothing should have stopped it. 
because this is how it started. It was placed into an incredibly dark place politically, commercially, and it seemed destined to be a church that was written about in history in a good way. And think about it. That already tasted how to conquer. That already proven that the gospel could conquer. And see, this is the real story behind the story at Ephesus. You know, what makes us think that emperor worship was going to be any darker or more wicked or more profoundly evil than what was already going on with the the worship of Diana and the magicians and the sorcerers and all those things? Nothing can conquer the kingdom of heaven. And they had already proven that. They had already gone in there and this church in one generation had exploded, not just in that city, to all of Asia. So they had already proven that. So now... That is the story behind this story. That started something so powerful. This would, this would be like a handful of people going to New York City or to Tokyo or to Beijing or to London. These powerful, big, landmark kind of cities in the world. And this little group of people going in and one generation. Woo! They see the power of the truth of the Word of God. So don't tell me that emperor worship, a cult on that level, is going to suddenly upend the power of that church. No. No, it's not. If Diana, who was married to Ephesus, apparently, this great, you know, deified, they were doing wicked, wicked things in this temple, exalting her. If, if, if the emperor worship was any more power, going to do anything, Diana would have already done it. So... Guys, this is not a level playing field. So let's get a grip on this. You know, we spend so much time as the church focusing on the enemy without and, oh, we've got to stop this and we've got to bind that and we've got to deal with that and we've got to, oh, we have to take authority, we have to control, we have to protect who we are. No, we don't. We don't have to protect who we are. We have to protect what's happening on the inside. That's what we have to protect. We have to protect how we are dealing. And we have to listen to Jesus speaking to us. I tell you what, the fear of God is on me as I read this and study this. I'm finding myself going, Jesus, I know you're walking around the lampstand still. Do you have anything to say to Melbourne Life? What are we doing, Lord, that we could improve on? Show us, Lord. Give us the ability to repent. Let your kindness lead us back. So, guys... If, if we're looking at the, you know, the Andrews government and we think that they're going to cause us a big problem, get a grip. If we think there's some sort of, you know, burrowing of, um, what's the word, communism or Marxism or if we think that, you know, or, I, don't, I don't want to start because I know I'll make enemies before I even get into the body of the thing. But <laughs> if we think they're the things that are going to ruin the church and do away with our who we are, we've got another thing coming. You know, I read this incredible article just yesterday, put uh, basically looking at the trends, the world trends and world religion trends, and it's saying that by the year 2050, that Christianity is going to be reduced so much. And, and I won't say the names of the religions, but basically other religions are going to take a predominance in the world. So we have a choice. Do we read that and go, oh man, we need to fight for who we are. We need to protect who we are. We need to fight for our rights. We need to pro- fight for our religious freedoms. We need... Guys, you can do all the fighting you want. If we don't get ourselves right from the inside we're nothing Jesus will remove our lampstand anyway so I would rather go back to who we are and build who we're supposed to be because you know what nothing 
Nothing can stand against that. You know, we, we look at all the religious freedom issues right now happening in our very nation, in our very state, in our, this place, right? And the threat to all of that. You know, in Acts, in the early church, when they had their religious freedoms being tackled, you know what they were doing? They didn't get into a little, into a little corner and start protecting themselves and start figuring what to do and, and having a holy huddle and praying, what should we do? Let's pray for ourselves. Let's pray for protection over our rights as a church in the city. No, you know what they did? They got together. They prayed in the Holy Spirit. They stretched their hands out and they said, God, you stretch your hand out. Let the Stretch out the hand of your Holy Holy Son, Jesus, and heal those people. Bring a revival. And they began to pray for the city that they were in. And it says that the glory of God was so strong that there was just this powerful, powerful uh, meeting of the Holy Spirit and these people in that place. Come on, guys. Who do we actually think we are? Who do we think we are? Do we really think we are who Jesus said we were? No wonder Paul said, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be flooded with light so that you will know the hope of his calling and the glorious inheritance that is within the saints. Come on, guys. We are not Melbourne Life, Jakarta Life. We're not going to go into a little holy huddle to protect our, our rights as the people of God. No. We're going to pray for our city. We're going to pray for our our political leaders. We're going to pray for their salvation. We're going to pray for a move of God. We're going to pray that the name of Jesus be exalted in the city. It's no different. You know, the year changes, the century changes, the God or the goddess changes, the deities change, the, the issues change, but the church never changes. The church is never meant to change the kingdom of heaven. The truths that are within who we are never change. Okay. Are you tracking with me? So now here's Jesus addressing them. And you know, when when you think about all that teaching material that I just listed before, is there any wonder that they got a commendation from God? He says in verse 2, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, and you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So in other words, they were clearly able to assess the false prophets, the false apostles and the false teachings that had been taught so well, they'd been given so much truth that they knew falsehood when it appeared. In other words, they took note of his letters and they took notice of his address to them when he gathered them together and said, be careful, there are going to be wolves that come in. So they, they obeyed Paul. They didn't tolerate the practices of the Nicolaitans. You know, Ephesus didn't tolerate all of these wicked things which Paul had warned them about. So they had an awesome understanding of truth. So they're grasping truth. They were very good at listening and they were very good at obeying. So what started as this hostile city became a city with a significant church in it, a headquarters for Paul, handed over to Timothy and even John pastored there, as I've mentioned. However, all right, so we understand now this powerful, powerful place, powerful church being upended by the Spirit of God, using available people, using God-ordained teachers and apostles. 
and honoured by the sheep and, and responded to by the people who are honouring the leadership as the government of the church that they've been given. And yet there's a warning from Jesus. But I have this against you in verse 4, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Wow, this is so heavy. In other words, you're not going to exist anymore. In other words, it's a church who started well with a true understanding of the love of God. Because you know what? They were there once. They used to be there. It's the, it's the kind of love that can only be reflected in how we actually love one another. And this is clear because when Paul was writing to, to the church, he was writing from a Roman prison. You know, we, we talked about his, his, his epistle. He thanked God for their love for one another. It says, for this reason, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. So it's already been acknowledged in the past. And yet in the end, they were completely, they'd completely fallen away from what they were known for. So they were very good at listening to truth. They were very good at obeying truth. They were very good at administering truth and keeping the wolves at bay, the wolves in sheep's clothing. The only problem is they'd left the love behind. The very thing that they had conquered in, how else do you think they'd become a church that was going out to all of Asia because love was the vehicle that was carrying them? Love was there. It had to have been there. And somewhere along the way, they lost the love. The love dropped off and they kept the obedience to the word going, but somehow love dropped off and they would have thought we've been so good we've got rid of all these false teachers we've got rid of all these people and here what a shock now what a stinging rebuke to them that Jesus is coming along now and saying you know what you need to remember go back to where you have fallen from in other words you used to be there you used to be there and in fact when Paul was writing to the Corinthian church. Remember 1 Corinthians 13? What's it all about? It's about love. You know where he was writing that from? He was writing that from the city of Ephesus. It could be that he's so just consumed with seeing this profound love that this church had for one another that he's writing to the church at Corinth going, you know what guys, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, because remember the Corinthian church had a problem in this. He says, but if I don't have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And he goes on to say, if I have all prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge that can be equated to doctrines and all that sort of stuff. And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, in other words, I can come in, I can do special, extraordinary miracles. But if I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain Nothing. Maybe it's because he saw the profound love in operation in the Ephesian church. Maybe that was the secret ingredient that propelled them to transform this dark city, to explode through the spiritual darkness in that place, not only in Ephesus, but to all of Asia. So no wonder Jesus now says, 
how intriguing and how poignant that he's using John, who used to pastor there, to say, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. So now some 37 to 40 years later, with an obvious departure from its roots and its first love, this epistle from the lips of Christ through the Apostle John makes sense. Remember, this is, a, this is like a love letter from Jesus to the church in Ephesus. Because we've, we've learned before in Jeremiah 29.7 that the church is meant to affect the city, not the city affect the church. All right. Are we starting to get it here? Let's, let's look really quickly before we close at what the real, real problem was. And it's kind of buried there in the script. This is why I love the Word of God. It's just never-ending. The more you read, the more you learn, the more you realize you need to read more and you need to learn more. It says that they had, and I'll go back to it, it says, in verse 2, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. So they had followed Paul's teaching. They didn't tolerate the evil men. They were obviously an outwardly impressive church. But what was the issue? They worked hard. They did lots of deeds. They labored hard. And they had endurance. Let's, let's just compare something. This will be something we can really grasp here. In the first letter to the Thessalonians, we can see exactly the same words again in chapter 1, verse, verse 3, if I can see it properly. Okay, so this is Paul writing to the Thessalonians. Verse 2, it says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor, of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father. Now, exactly the same words. If you look it up in the Greek, the translations can be different, but it's all the identical word. They all had... They all worked hard, they did lots of deeds, they toiled and they had endurance or steadfastness or perseverance. So in other words, you're doing the right works even with weariness involved with an attitude of endurance. That's what, that's what Jesus is saying to the church at Ephesus. That sounds like great character to me. But what is the difference about the Revelation account from Jesus to what Paul said to the Thessalonians? Can you guys see the difference? There's something there that is different. In Thessalonians, it says, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope. So the things that are missing here are faith, hope, and love. And of course we know that the greatest of these is love. You see, Ephesus had all the activity and the diligence of hard work and endurance. But they let go of the most important thing, which was love. The Ephesians felt safe in taking control through their beliefs, but they lost their freedom to love, despite people's errors. Wow, what an error for them to slide into. That just didn't happen overnight. They were, they were doing the, the works in faith at the start. 
They were laboring and toiling hard through love because they love people. And they were enduring because of the hope in Jesus Christ that they had set before them. But somewhere along the line, in that 37-year gap, they lost the faith, the hope, and the love. And all they had was doing the work, getting tired, and enduring. You know what? That sounds like the seedbed of resentment to me. And in the end, Jesus said, you know what? If you don't get your foundational motives right, I'm actually going to come in as much as it will break my heart, but I'm going to have to come in and I'm going to remove your lampstand in the city because you're not representing who I am. You know, I'm just going to close with this. Brahma and I came out of a church. Very, very interesting. And I've often asked God why we were part of it in the first place because it did so much damage. And yet at the start, it was such a powerful movement to be a part of. Back in the early 80s, we went there when Jessica, our eldest, was uh, three weeks old. It had a revival spirit. It was so exhilarating and exciting to be a part of. And uh, we would see amazing things happening. I, I had deliverance in that church, which you'll hear me talk about in DMS. And, uh, and yet in the end, they, they had a very obnoxious way about bringing, the, about bringing the gospel. It didn't start off that way, but as the time went on, throughout the decade of the, uh, the 80s, they became a very obnoxious uh, church that almost weaponized their doctrines. I remember one guy down here, it was an American guy, because it was, it was in, from America, and it was worldwide. They had churches. They, you talk about a, a missionary movement. It was so exciting to be a part of. And they, of course, they started one here in Melbourne that we became part of. Had New Zealand, the Philippines, Europe, Indonesia, all over America, England. They were everywhere. To all intents and purposes, this was an exploding church. They caught the eye of other big movements in the world because of this excitement and this exhilaration. But these guys weaponized doctrines. I remember one guy coming out and in his zeal, preaching open air in Melbourne Uni, began to preach to all these gorgeous young uni students, calling them whores, trying to deal with their sexual sin. And it was, it was unbelievable. That's just one thing. <laughs> And, uh, you know, in the end, God removed their lampstand. Now, whether that's literally what happened, I can't know until I get to heaven, but to all intents and purposes, from Brahms and my perspective, that movement has gone. The entire structure, you talk about the angels that are held in the hand of Jesus governing a particular church, that entire governmental structure that was over that, that movement has dissipated. Now, were they Christians? Of course. Was it a real church? Yes. Because he only reproves those whom he loves. Yeah? I mean, you look at other so-called Christian cults, they're still going. He doesn't deal with them. He deals with his church. He deals with the people that really do love him. Were they a cult? I wouldn't go that far, but were they cultish? Absolutely. And when the time came for them to address that, I remember Brahma and I were just coming into leadership as God was literally, I believe, almost challenging them to repent. And I remember as this young, you know, woman, first of all, I'm a woman, that was already against me because they, they, they weren't real keen on women in leadership. But So I'm a woman. 
and then I'm bold and I've got this prophetic edge to me so I'm saying what I, and I remember at a meeting Brahma had just been placed as an elder in the church and there was all this shaking that was going on and I remember they asked for all of us to share what it was we saw that needed to happen so I'd never been put in that position of sharing my thoughts before so I went home I took it seriously I had a notebook I've still got the notebook I look at it every now and then it's hilarious and it's so bright, it's so accurate, it's kind of scary. There I was, this young mum, only saved probably nine years. And so I wrote down what I saw. And I just thought everyone else in that meeting was going to share what they thought too. It turns out when they asked, who wants to share what they think should happen now? No one had the guts to say what they thought. Except for me. So I put my hand up and said, well, I think we all need to repent. I think these things are wrong. These things, these abuses of power... I mean, you know me, all of you who know me, I don't mince my words. I don't kind of, I don't, I'm not diplomatic like my husband. I'm not, I don't find a way to say things in a way that's really easily to take. No, I just go, you know what? We need to repent of this. This is wrong. We've been, the whole movement, we hadn't been involved in it, but they had been controlling. They had been doing this, that and the other. You know what? That was a moment. And I believe that was a moment for them to see that. And instead, the uproar against me was nothing short of profound. Oh, I was called Jezebel. I was everything. I nearly had, well, I probably did have a nervous breakdown. It affected our family, our children. It was a very dark time for us to emotionally and spiritually come out of that. But I look back now and I learn from that and go, okay, what was God doing? And you know what? It looks like now that whole lampstand has been removed. Are the people still being used by God? Yes, of course they are. They've gone on to do other things. But we will never get back that structure, that frail thing that was called that church under that government. Do you understand what I'm saying? We don't muck around with God. He takes this incredibly seriously. You know, those, that structure is no longer inf influential. It's a memory now. So what can we learn from all of this? We can learn that we can be tough on our doctrinal truth. We can be contenders for truth. But if we're devoid of love in word and deed, then we're completely missing the entire point. So let me finish with this. We need to be careful that we as a church are not caught up in the concept of the truth. This is what we can learn from this admonition to the church at Ephesus. We don't get caught up in the concept of the truth and at the same time miss the person of the truth. Yeah? We've got to remember who we are. The Ephesians were in danger of losing their very essence, which was meant to mark them as disciples of Jesus, their love for one another. The church, no matter how powerless it might seem in a society, is the guardian of its culture. And let me just finish with this, this verse. In 1 Timothy 1.15, If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. This is who we are. Sadly, the Ephesians forgot who they were. So guys... Let's come back. Let's return. Let's allow the Spirit of God 
to check our hearts and speak to our hearts. At the very end, it wasn't all doom and gloom. Jesus was saying, I want to invite you into a place of conquering. In fact, Ephesians, you've been there before. Just remember, go back, repent and come back because then you'll conquer. Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word, that you've called us to be a pillar in society, that you've called us to be a a buttress of the truth, a pillar, a buttress, something that would uphold truth and display truth, that we would have an impact, that we would shine your light as a lampstand in a city, Lord. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you will fill us with a boldness that can only come from your spirit. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that even as you walk amongst the churches now in 2021, that you are watching, you are leading and you are guiding, you are holding the angels in your hands, whoever they may be, Lord. And you are speaking to your people, Father. Speak to us. We ask you to speak to us even now, Lord. Speak to us as a church. Let us look within, Father, because it's not what's happening out there that we need to be afraid of. It's what's happening and what we tolerate within, Lord. Father, let us be a people who will walk according to your truth, but more than anything, the vehicle of love will will carry us forward. In Jesus' name. Amen.